morning, everyone. So Psalm 39 is a good backdrop to what we're going to consider this morning. We're going to be studying the book of Ecclesiastes this week and next week, kind of an overview, hitting on some themes. Um, all right, so how many of you have been involved in building sandcastles this summer? Show of hands. Come on, I need to see these hands because I'm going to need some help. I need a volunteer to ask a couple sandcastle questions. So, Sophia, would you please come up here? You're close. So, Sophia, we have a picture of a sandcastle. I'm, I know you know what it is, but just in case anybody else doesn't know, this is one in the works from Chincoteague um, Beach this summer. Ben and Johnny were working on that. Um, you don't have to answer any questions about that particular sandcastle, but I just want to ask you, are sandcastles on the beach a waste of time? Building sandcastles on the beach a waste of time? No. Okay. <laughs> I think that's a good answer. So, um, how long do sandcastles on the beach last, typically? Uh, less than a day. Less than a day? Yep. Okay, so they don't last very long. Okay. Have you ever had it happen where it's like ruined while you're building it because you didn't build it far enough, far enough up the beach? Okay. So you knew this, like when you were getting started with this most recent sandcastle that didn't last more than a day, you knew before you started that it was going to get washed away completely within a day. You knew that up front. Okay. So what, like how long did it take you to build this sandcastle? Well, it was, Roughly. it was more than one, so it took Okay, minutes. maybe take one of the longer ones, the one that, ones that took you uh, longer. The Sandcastle City took about, like, 20 minutes. Sandcastle City? You don't just build a castle, you build a, a city? It only took you 20 minutes? Well, it's a small city, but... Okay, that's pretty quick. Ours take a little longer, but that's cool. All right, you're just fast. Um, so, they take a lot of effort, but they are worth making. Do you enjoy making sandcastles? Okay. All right. Thank you. You did a great job. <laughs> okay, folks. Oh, sorry. Can you put the sandcastle back up? That's your life. Actually, in two ways. And actually, it's the book of Ecclesiastes as well. Both the sobering your life is just a sandcastle on the beach. It's going to just be completely washed away really quick. And the enjoyable part. Let's build a sandcastle, kids. Like, even though we know it's going to get washed away. So, two parts on Ecclesiastes. Kind of an overview, hitting a couple of themes. One, Hevel, we'll talk about that in a minute, what that word means in Hebrew. And death every sandcastle gets leveled and quickly. But Hevel and life, sandcastles are a blast to make. And because they get washed away, it doesn't mean we don't make them. And those things are actually connected. So Ecclesiastes is here both to blow up your false hopes and make you happier. You know that? Do you know that Ecclesiastes is here to make you happier? To help you live life with joy? I'm serious. <laughs> I was kind of 
helped and corrected with just the, the tone, the purpose of Ecclesiastes as I've been reading it personally and, and also reading this book. I mentioned it last week, Living Life Backward. I'll quote that once or twice, I think three times. I don't know, this morning. All right, so this morning, Hevel and death. So what's this weird word in italics, Hevel? Well, Ecclesiastes 1.1. So if you want to turn there, um, you can find it in your Bible. You don't have a Bible with you. There's one in the pew. And you can find Ecclesiastes on page 553, right after Proverbs. And there's an outline in the bulletin. If you want to take notes, the slides will also be up there, giving you an idea of how we're moving through the outline. All right? So first key term in this book is this term in Hebrew, Hevel. So Ecclesiastes 1.1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Hevel Hevelim, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So pretty important word, right? If you look at the end of the book, you have the same refrain, like bookends. And that word is repeated many times through the book. So it's really important. So if we miss this word, we're going to miss the meaning of the book. So what does the word mean? Well, the NIV, good translation, generally. NIV translates it, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Hmm. Actually, don't like that translation. I think it's misleading. So look back three verses in your Bible. And I know that takes you into a different book. But look back three verses into Proverbs 31. This is an intentional connection. Okay? Each book was inspired, but also there's some connections that are meant to be seen in the ordering of the books. So Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceptive, right? This is familiar to many of you. And beauty is... Hevel. It's vain. Now the NIV says beauty is fleeting. Wait a second. Why did you change the meaning? Like in three verses. So fleeting is better. That's actually what the primary focus of it. Sometimes it can lean in the direction of meaningless. Okay, But if you say everything is meaningless, you'll see that it really will mislead us. Okay, So charm is deceptive. Beauty is Hevel. But a woman who fears the Lord is, is to be praised. So beauty is not meaningless. It's fleeting. In other words, wisdom says don't plant your identity in something so transient, so fragile. If you do, you're building your life on sand, sand that is pouring quickly through an hourglass. So you can see how the translation impacts the meaning and then how you apply it. So Proverbs 31 doesn't say that beauty is meaningless, but that it's fleeting and that difference matters. So you can imagine in the church or with a Christian parent, if that parent says to a, a, a daughter that physical beauty is meaningless, a lot of daughters are going to chafe at that. And probably rightly so, because that's actually an overstatement. Beauty is not meaningless. It's fleeting. So get the, the point right, right? Beauty is built into God's world. It's God's idea. It's a reflection of him. He's beautiful, perfectly beautiful. He's the fountain and perfection of all beauty. That's why we're wired for beauty. 
but physical beauty is fleeting. It's not substantial and lasting enough. It's not solid enough to locate your identity there. If you do, you can imagine how shaky your security is going to be, right? Because you're going to get old and wrinkly. You're never going to be able to keep up with the magazine covers. So I read this article a little while back in World Magazine entitled Selfies with a Supermodel by Sophia Lee. You can look it up. So this author's friend ran a homeless ministry in L.A. This illustrates Proverbs 31, but it also sets up the trajectory of Ecclesiastes and the use of this word vanity. Um, So her friend runs a homeless ministry in L.A., and one morning there was a woman named Ivy Nicholson who turned up on the doorstep. So I'm quoting from the article here. When I showed up at my friend's church, the two ladies, the one that runs the ministry, and this Ivy Nicholson were sitting in the church kitchen drinking cups of coffee. Ivy was um, regaling Regina with tales of her past, how she traveled all around the world doing high fashion shoots, and for the rest of the afternoon, all she talked about was the past. One of the first things she said to me was, do you know who I am? Look me up. Well, back in the 1950s, Ivy was one of the most beautiful models of her time, gracing the covers of Vogue and L. Is that how you say that? E-L-L-E? Okay. Ellie, I don't know. Okay, sorry. You can laugh at me. Go ahead. That's, um, when she hit her 30s, her modeling days faded away with her youth, and her fame wilted beneath the bloom of countless younger stars. In the meantime, she married a French count, divorced him, then married a director half her age, followed by another divorce. Now, on the day I met her, she was homeless. Though home, please don't do it now. I know some of you have, you know, you're wired, and you could check pictures of her right now. But I would encourage you to check pictures of her later, okay? To see what she looks like now and to see what she looked like back in the 50s. So, though homeless, Ivy still paid attention to her looks. That day, her eyes were lined with coal, K-O-H-L. Dark eyeliner stuff, okay. Lips painted pink, cheeks brushed with rosy powder, nails sparkling with glitter, but now her exquisite features were buried under drooping skin, crow's feet wrinkles, and wispy bleached hair. The once gorgeous young woman was now an 84-year-old homeless woman, but she still acted as if in the heyday of her 20s, giggling and fixing her hair in the compact mirror. She barely talked about her kids and grandchildren, but bragged how easy it was for her to gain VIP seats at fancy schmancy bars and hard-to-reserve restaurants. But I felt rather sad for the poor woman. She seemed to me to be basing so much of her self-worth and value on her physical appearance and past experiences. I also felt convicted because as embarrassed as I am to admit it, I also base too much of my own worth and self-confidence in how I look and what I've accomplished. Is this really what I want to boast about 50 years from today? So... In Ecclesiastes, Hevel is translated vanity in the ESV. So sometimes it's used to describe the futility of life in this fallen world under the curse of sin. Okay, so look at chapter 1, verse 14. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Okay, so you can hear the connotations of futility. Striving after the wind is a futile exercise. 
Sometimes it has connotations of vexation and frustration. So look at chapter 2, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Frustration, futility. But this is not the cynical sneer of a nihilist. A guy named Peter Kroll said it well when he wrote this. Hevel is not really about nihilism, cynicism, or purposelessness, meaninglessness. It's about the tedium, transience, impermanence, and dissatisfaction God built into the universe. We've all felt this, right? Moms feel it all the time. Laundry and meals and house cleaning feels this way, doesn't it? Like, just keep doing it, and it seems like, you know, just pouring effort down in the drain. Nothing really gained. Does that mean it's all meaningless? Like, all that effort, the meals and the laundry and the, like, no, that's not meaningless. You loved and served children, and you reflected God's provision and care and faithfulness and order, but it's almost as if something can be meaningful and futile at the same time. And that's what's going on here. So he goes back and forth between saying vanity and saying, well, this is good and this is better than that. Both and are true at the same time. So it's important we understand this word so that we will understand this book Two more examples before we move on to our second point, just so that you can see um, reinforced that this is what this means. So look at Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7. Actually, maybe we'll just look at one of them. Look at Ecclesiastes 9, 7 to 10. He writes, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, the grave to which you are going. So, verse 9. If, if Hevel means meaningless, we might be tempted to, to think he's being sarcastic and snarky here. Go. Eat your bread with joy. <laughs> Drink your wine, you know. Enjoy, the life with the, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. <laughs> Is that how he said it? No, he's not saying that. He's saying, actually, enjoy those things. Because it's so fleeting. So enjoy it. Because it's going to be gone like this. So the image on the slide, you know, that coffee cup is, is fitting. That's your life. That's my life. The steam rising off of a cup of coffee. Or blow out a candle and watch the wisps of smoke. That's your life. Try to grasp Try to grasp that wisp and hold on to it. So smoke and steam are real things. You can see them, but you try to grab hold of them and store them away. You can't. 
They're elusive and fleeting by nature, and that is our life. So Barry Webb, Old Testament commentator, says it well. He says, Hevel is like the whole category of things it refers to, rootless, unstable, subject to continuous change. But in Kohelet's hands, that's the Hebrew term for the preacher, okay? But in Kohelet's hands, it will become a powerful weapon. For what this motto tells us in no uncertain terms is that Kohelet is a debunker. He will not tolerate pretension or allow anything to appear more solid or satisfying than it really is. In a delightful image coined by Eugene Peterson, he uses Hevel like a little broom to sweep away all our illusions. Okay, so life is Hevel, Hevelim, our work and our wisdom, beauty and pleasure, sandcastles on the beach. They're good, but they're not something to build your life on. They're not lasting enough. They're not solid enough. They're not going to satisfy you. Life is so brief. Death comes to all of us, and death bursts all our bubbles, all the illusions. Oh, this will bring me life and security and satisfaction. So death bursts all the bubbles, but it also helps us live, live wisely. So the preacher sticks the pin of time and decay and death into our pretense and our false security and our comforts that are in the wrong things and forces us to look reality in the face. In fact, in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 11, it says, the words of the wise are like goads. When you goad an animal to get it going, you poke it with this sharp pointed thing. Like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So we can try to dodge and avoid and tell the preacher to stop, but he's poking and prodding us here because he's, he's telling us that dealing with death, looking in, it in the face, is what will actually prepare us to live. And more on the preparing us to live part next week. So that's the first point. What is this word? Vanity or Hevel. Second point, Hevel and death. So David Gibson, again, highly recommend, great little book, Living Life Backward. Um, he writes this. He says, we tend to live as if the one thing that is certain will never come, while the many things that are uncertain are certain. The one thing is obviously death. And yet we pretend all the time that our life isn't like this. We strive against death, consciously, unconsciously, all the time. We even try to, like, pull the wool over our own eyes, you know? And Ecclesiastes won't let that happen. Just rips the wool away, makes us stare death and the brevity of life in the face. Because looking death in the face is the only way to live. It's the only way to live we need to live in light of our death. So again, David Gibson, left to our own devices, we tend to live life forward. This is why his book is called Living Life Backward. We do not know the future, but we plan and hope and dream of where we will be and what we'd like to be doing and whom we might be with. We live forward. Ecclesiastes teaches us to live life backward. It encourages us to take the one thing in the future that is certain, our death, 
and work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives and to think about them from the perspective of the end. It is the destination that makes sense of the journey. So Ecclesiastes is in the business of demolishing our pretense and our presumption, forcing us to reflect like eyes wide open, reflect on life under the sun, all of its complexity and futility, all of its contradictions. And again, death comes to all under the sun in this fallen world. So the preacher here is aiming to blow up our illusions of control, as if we have it, power, somebodiness. He says, welcome to the amusement park. <laughs> Buy a ticket, hop on the merry-go-round, you know, whoop and holler all you want, but know that the ride is going to end. And you're going to have to get off, and the music is going to keep playing, and more people are going to get on and off and on and off. So death is intended to be our teacher. If we're studying Ecclesiastes, death is intended to be our teacher. So let's listen up, class, all of us. Lesson number one. Turn to chapter 7, verses 2 to 6. Havel and death. Let's let death teach us. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. So in one sense, it is better to go to a funeral than a wedding. Because this death is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. He goes on and says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise man than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. So he's not saying, you know, you should be sour and walk away from every wedding reception. No, enjoy that. But as far as learning how to live, you're going to learn more at a funeral than you will at a wedding. And it's so easy for us to just put this lesson off and stick our fingers in our ears and keep going on. We need to look it in the face, listen, as death teaches us. So we don't often think of our end. We don't often talk about death. Death in our culture is more taboo than sex. And yet it's coming for every single one of us. And so the house of mourning, a funeral, is actually a merciful gift to the living. It's a wake-up call. A funeral is like, a, is like God holding up a big sign saying, life is short and precious. Death is inevitable. Are you ready? So funerals are like a rehearsal for your own death. Death is a preacher, a pretty good one. He can usually get our attention, even though shortly thereafter we want to turn up the volume and kind of listen to something else. But we dare not stick our fingers in our ears and live behind the veil of illusion, trying to fake ourselves out from reality. We need to be ready for death. 
How are we going to be ready for death? Ignoring the big questions and just living for the moment isn't going to get you ready. So the biblical storyline, God makes everything good, good, very good. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all going to die. But Jesus died to save sinners. Only Jesus can get you ready. But Jesus can get you ready. Believing the gospel gets you ready. If you try to atone for your own sins, you're not going to be ready. Try to stand on your own merits before God, you're not going to be ready. But if you trust Jesus as your Savior, you are forgiven of all your sins, reconciled to God, you can face the judge at the end without fear. He took hell for us on the cross so that we wouldn't have to go there. He left heaven, came to earth, so that we can go to heaven when we leave earth. So why would we not trust Jesus? If any of you are not trusting Jesus, I just plead with you. Again, your death is imminent. Sandcastle wiped away. That's our life. Why would you not trust Jesus? Fix your eyes on him and run the race that's set before you. He is the author of life. He is the finisher of our faith. And he died to kill the power of death, to set us free from its slavery. The tomb is empty just as he was raised. We can have living hope. We will also be raised. The hope of the resurrection is ours in Christ. Death can't kill that. So you and I, we're all going to die. We have no control over when. Ecclesiastes 8.8 says, No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. So the question is, are we going to lay that to heart? And how are we going to live in light of it? So there's another important lesson. Um, you know, death is our teacher, chapter 7. Also in chapters 11 and 12, but I'll leave that one for you to attend to later. Okay, third point, Hevel and hope. So Hevel, Hevelim, everything is Hevel, all is fleeting and vaporous. Death is like this cruel needle popping the bubbles of our hopes and dreams and joys. We've got to face death if we're really going to learn to live, to be set free to live. But it's not all stoic, stiff upper lip, lip and just kind of, you know, soldier on. Here's the thing. Think about this. Ecclesiastes uses the reality of death to pop those illusions of security and control and pleasure and whatever else, because a lot of them are just mirages in the desert. But it actually does it so that you will see that the only solid place to build your life is on the rock of God's person and his grace and his truth, ultimately his son. And what did Jesus do? Jesus popped death's bubble. So death, you know, blows up all our illusions, and Jesus says, I'm going to blow up death. So actually, <laughs> allowing Ecclesiastes to burst all of our bubbles will set us up to not be disappointed. So if we live for the diversions, we will have no hope. We'll be slaves of fear in the face of death. 
We'll use our diversions to avoid the harsh realities, and we're going to just remain enslaved. But when we allow death to burst those bubbles, we are dealing in reality, and then Jesus can free us from our fear of death, and we can face the fact that we're going to die and know that we have eternal hope. And death loses its sting. It's not the ultimate thief. It can even become a servant. To live as Christ and to die is gain. So we live in hope. Josh read from Romans 8, the beginning, earlier. Romans 8, 18, a little bit further along. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, vanity, vanities. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what's coming. This hope is coming. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. So coming to terms with Hevel Hevelim can actually help us to lock our hope in the right place in God where we won't be disappointed. So again, the meaning of Hevel matters. The point is not that this life is meaningless. It's fleeting and death comes for all of us and blows up all our hopes except the hope of the resurrection. Death doesn't get the last word. And death can't ultimately make our wide-angle view life fleeting and fragile. Because again, God gets the last word. So, death doesn't win. Jesus wins. And Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Or Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness forever. The reason why we taste and experience vanity of vanities is because we taste it, but it doesn't last. Or it's just not fully satisfying. But in God, it's fullness of joy forever. That is our hope. So, number four. A word to the young, to the old, and to those in the middle. So, first off, a word for the young. I'll just let you guys determine who's in which category, okay? Remember Ecclesiastes 7. So, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. So, listen. So I'm thinking, like, maybe particularly teenagers and then a little bit on either side. I say this with no snark, with no condescending kind of parental finger wagging. Just very seriously. Memes and gifs 
and Snapchat and TikTok and Vines. May they rest in peace. Those of you that, okay, you guys know what I'm talking about. They're fun. But they will not get you ready to die. Which means they won't really help you live. So I'm not saying don't ever, you know, find memes or hang out on these different platforms. What I'm saying is, if that's where life gets centered too much, it's not going to help you live. So, again, I'm speaking to the young still. You might resonate with somebody saying no one ever, you know, wished on their deathbed that they had worked more. Okay? I don't think that anyone's going to wish they spent more time on memes and Snapchat and TikTok or whatever platform is hot next year or the year after that. So we all need to listen. And I encourage you, this book is actually written in a lot of senses for younger folks. Listen to Ecclesiastes. Look reality in the face. Don't spend your life chasing the wind. Ask yourself, do I want to spend more of my life watching other people live? Or do I want to get out there and live following Jesus? Do I want to be a slave of social media? If so, just for what this is worth, know that you're actually working for Snapchat, Instagram, and TikTok, and yet you don't get paid, but you're working for them. That's exactly what they want. They, they pay you maybe in likes through your friends. You pay them in data. <laughs> And they want more and more of your attention, and they're going to set up their platforms in such a way as to get as much of it as possible. So if they can get you to work for them full-time, they would do it. So ask yourself, do I want to be a slave of what others think of how much attention my posts get? Again, it's all vanity. Feel that. Use it. It's a good thing. It can be used well. But it's also just vanity of vanities. Our identity, our life, our joy has to be built on something bigger, more solid and substantial. Now a word for the old. Again, you can determine who that is. Um, and I don't mean it in a derogatory way at all. So those of us who are, <laughs> those of you who are older, um, if you're in that older category and I just said us, you're going to like say something snarky back. So okay. Um, Rightfully so. So you probably don't need to be convinced of the reality of Hevel Hevelin. You've lived long enough to feel the heavy weight of futility, the sand through the fingers, light speed, flight of time. Here's what I say. Again, by noticing what the preacher is saying in this book, don't give the young the snark and the condescending finger wagging. When he says go and enjoy these things but remember God will bring you into judgment for all these things. He doesn't say it with this like nasty snarky attitude and frankly sometimes that is true of the older as they look at the young. Oh, kids these days, you know? Like, don't do that. Give them the humble wisdom that shares by experience the vanity of everything under the sun. 
and give them the humble confidence that shares by example the death-defying hope of the gospel, even when you are maybe months away. They need to see that. They need that shared with them. And then a word for those in the middle. I'm going to actually have N.D. Wilson do this. So I'm reading this book as well, Death by Living. Life is meant to be spent. It's kind of in a, like a poetic um, riff off of Ecclesiastes. And he's certainly an entertaining writer, if you've ever read anything by him. So here we go. Word for those in the middle. Shall we die for ourselves or die for others? We're all going to die. Have a hevelim, you know, death in the face, facing it. For most of us, the question is rarely posed in our final mortal moment, although there is glory when it is. Death is the finish line of this preliminary race. Shall we cross the finish line for ourselves or for others? The choice isn't waiting for us down the track. The choice is now. Death is now. The choice is here. Lay your life down. Your heartbeats can't be hoarded. Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands. Blister them while you can. You have bones. Make them strain. They can carry nothing in the grave. He's probably early 40s at this point. I have around 250,000 conscious hours remaining to me in which I could be smiling or scowling, rejoicing in my life, in this race, in this story, or moaning and complaining about my troubles. I can be giving my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breaths to my wife and my children and my neighbors, or I can grasp after the vapor and the vanity for myself, dragging my feet, afraid to die, and therefore afraid to live. And like Adam, I will still die in the end. Living is the same thing as dying. Living well is the same thing as dying for others. May I live hard to the dregs. May my living be grace to those behind me. And then the last word. So death is the enemy. Nothing lasts. We take nothing with us. It blows up all our hopes if our hope is not in God. Everything is Hevel Hevelim. The author, the preacher, you know, walking around with a pen, bursting bubbles. But death doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. And Jesus bursts death's bubble. So listen to the last word that is ours from Jesus, from 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel by which you are being saved. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to many. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain, and you're still in your sins. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have died. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. A woman named Aubrey Sampson writes, Because of the sin-atoning, death-defying, bondage-breaking, heart-healing, prisoner-emancipating, forgiveness-bringing, adoption-declaring, heaven-and-earth-meeting, new-creation-ushering, shalom-restoring, victory-winning, evil-overcoming, righteousness-gifting, spirit-filling, work of the cross and the resurrection— pain and suffering will never be the end of our story. They don't get the last word. Jesus does. So therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing in Christ alone and have some community discussion. Oh God, we thank you that you tell us the truth. That you look us in the eye and tell us what we need to hear, not always what we want to hear. So, Lord, help us not to look away. Help us not to run away. Help us not to stick our fingers in our ears or just get diverted and distracted so we don't have to face the harsh realities of life in this fallen world. Because you don't just want to blow up our false hopes. You want to give us real and living hope. So help us to set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus so that we are ready to die. And being ready to die, we will be able to live and lovingly lay our lives down for the good of others. So help us, give us grace, we pray, and help us to follow follow Jesus eyes fixed on him. In his name we pray. Amen.